No, no, if you've met Joe Ward, Joe's our executive pastor. Um, I guess he came just a little over a year ago. Uh, earlier in his ministry, and if you don't know him, he'll be actually preaching the 11 o'clock service. Early in his ministry, Joe was a missionary in Tanzania. And, and this afternoon, we were, or not this afternoon, this week, we were sitting in our staff meeting and he just started telling some stories. And he told some this story that just like blew my mind. And I thought, man, this goes perfect with what kind of our, our, our theme is this morning. He's in this village in Tanzania, and this village had kind of this ghost in the darkness. You remember that movie experience? They had lions that would come into the village and raid the village and occasionally, like, actually eat people. And in this village, they, it wasn't rare, you know, when that happened for people to stay up and they would try to hunt the lions. But at this time, and kind of, I guess, in the economy, the Bullets were being rationed and the, the village didn't have any bullets. And so they went to the missionaries and said, hey, would you come? Because um, you have supplies. Would you hunt, li- hunt the lions to help us stay safe? And so he's telling the story and like, I'm leaning in because I'm, I don't know about y'all, but I've never hunted lion before. Um, and so he said, they went out and there was this, this giant kind of like field, almost like football stadium uh, area. And now this is going to make some of you uncomfortable. I'm just the messenger, though. Uh, The village supplied a dog, and they put the dog, they staked the dog into the ground like the dog was like bait. This is Tanzania, okay? This is not like your backyard in Georgetown, so just understand. And the missionaries got, and they were like up and something, and they were waiting that night for the the sun to go down, for the lions to come. As the lions came after, they were going to shoot the lions. But as he tells the story, he says, as, as the sun goes down, the fog also rolls in. And he said, so occasionally, and they're, they're talking, he's talking to the Tanzanian guy with him. And he said, occasionally the dog would howl and that was, you know, normal. It's, you know, what it would do. And he said, they noticed like after some time that the dog wasn't howling anymore. And so he told the Tanzanian, turn on the spotlight. And he said, the Tanzanian turns on the spotlight and there's six sets of eyes in the fog. And so he starts shooting at these lions and the lions take off. The next morning, they get up and they have to go find the lions to make sure that they got him. And so this is where the story gets crazy, a crazier. I mean, if you're like PETA, I know the story went crazy already, but um, at that time of the year, there was the grass that he was telling they get like a hundred inches of rain or something like that. And they get it all in, in one or two months. And this grass grows up super high. And that's one of the reasons why the lions start coming to the village because it's harder for them to hunt. They can't see. And he said they had to go out into this, this tall, you know, head high grass and go tracking the lions hunting for them. And so you, I guess you have a machete and you're going through and you're, you're cutting through going to look for this, these lions to see, if you, to see if you shot one or not. And as he's telling the story, I'm kind of, I'm like, I, I think I see where this is going. He says, you know, when you're out there, it's scary because you're cutting through this, this grass and you don't know what you're gonna find. You don't know if there's a lion in the grass you don't know if two steps away from you is a deadly venomous snake. You don't, you don't know if there's a, a, a jaguar. You don't know what's out there. And you're just kind of walking blind. And I'm thinking, I mean, I've always told parents, if God calls your kids to Africa as a missionary, let them go. And also I'm like, I don't know. You know, that's kind of scary now. I mean, I was thinking like, let's just like love Africans and help them out. Not like, you know, take a machete through the grass after a lion. That's, that's really not in the missionary job description, I didn't think. And so he's telling that story. And it was just a perfect picture of what we're going to talk about today. And it's this, walking a path is easier than making a path. 
Walk in the, you know, if they told me, hey, we need you to, you know, you're in Africa. I'm like walking down, if there's a highway, I'm finding the nearest highway and I'm walking down the center line so that if a lion comes out or something, I've got, not that I'm gonna get away, but I have the best chance at it, you know? Making the path is always more difficult than walking the path that someone else has already made. Now, the argument there, and, it, and it's a valid one, is going to be, what about, what about being a trailblazer? I mean, the person who makes the path often makes history, right? July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong steps off of Apollo 11 and he walks on the moon as the very first human being ever to do that. I mean, no one is going to take that away from him. And so, so I understand there's the argument. If you're just following in the path of other people, where, where is the Neil Armstrong? Where is the guy who's first? Where's the guy who, who walks off and takes pictures of something that before would never have been seen? Or August 3rd of 1492, Christopher Columbus gets on a ship trying to find a, a route around the world to get to Asia. And two months later, he lands in the Bahamas and discovers the new world. I mean, if you're just walking in someone else's path, how does that happen, right? I mean, so there, there's, there's, there's a good argument and I understand the argument. There's this good argument of if I'm always walking in someone else's path and not making it, I might miss out on history. And, and again, that's true. I mean, you think about Christopher Columbus and doing that. I mean, that was in the 1400s. I mean, we're in, in 2015 and we have state-of-the-art technology. We've got state-of-the-art ships and boats and we still see occasionally like a cruise ship gets stranded in the ocean, right? And it takes days, you know, for, for help to get there and rescue to get there and get them off that ship. And you wonder how in the world did that happen? But you go back to the 1400s, you're talking about a trailblazer. You're talking about somebody who took great risk and with that came great reward. I mean, is there anything better than having a day named after you in America? Columbus Day, you know, uh, but he's in the history books. And he did something no one else had done. Even if you take it practically, if you're in business, many times the first person to the table wins the market share. It's the person who took the risk. It's the first person who got there. That's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. And so the argument might be, well, if I'm always walking in the path that someone else has walked down, maybe I'll never be successful and maybe I'll never be first. Maybe I'll never be the trailblazer. But let's take that argument and put it into the context of, of reality. Because we're not talking about just being a follower. I love leadership. That's one of the things that, that we're trying to build into students and leaders, the people who are out front. They're going first. But you go back to Neil Armstrong, Apollo 11, he gets off the uh, ship and onto the moon and he's first. But let's also remember that was Apollo 11, right? Apollo 8 had already orbited the moon multiple times to see what it was like. Apollo 9 and Apollo 10 had done the missions. There were other astronauts who had, who had gone into space first. And before people went into space first, there were people that went into the upper atmosphere first. And so in reality, even though Neil Armstrong was first and he was a trailblazer, he spent a lot of time walking in the path of people before him. I mean, Neil Armstrong, you know, it wasn't like, you know, a youth minister somewhere one Sunday morning teaching a parenting teen class and the next day went, you know what? I think I'm gonna go to the moon. That'd be awesome. You know, let me do it. 
No, I mean, there was training, there was learning, there was people before him. And so he just took the next step, but he had walked the path of other people. Christopher Columbus, the same way. Christopher Columbus didn't just get a you know, wild idea one time, save up some money and go buy a boat and let's go sailing. Never done this before. No, I mean, he, he had learned how to sail ships. He had done a lot of things along the way that other people had done before him and learned from them. He didn't just invent sailing. He learned from other people along the way. And in business, the guy who gets to the table first, that wins the market share, in reality, most likely had some college professors along the way that taught him some principles about business. There were some other bosses that he had along the way and other jobs he did that he learned concepts from and he walked in their path before he took the next step. So when we talk about walking a path is is easier than making a path. We're not talking about being lazy. We're not talking about not being a leader. We're not talking about not trailblazing. We're talking about learning from people who have been before us. For some of us, that's hard because some of us in this room, you're like, we can probably say it's genetic. You're probably genetically wired to learn the hard way, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, like, yeah, I heard some giggles. Like, yeah, that was probably your spouse going, yeah, that's him. we're just wired that way. You could have an expert in the field go, don't do this. And, and, and you've already, and you're, nope, I'm going to try it. I'm going to see if that's true or not. Some of you have kids that way, right? That no matter what you say, you say, don't do this. And you just look at your spouse and you're like, it's going to be a disaster. You know, because they, they're just wired to learn the hard way. I, I remember getting my first car. It was a silver 280ZX. It was, it was well, it was half silver and half rust. Um, not painted that way. It just, it was old. And uh, I got this car and, and I don't remember, we didn't have very many rules, you know, for driving, you know, be safe, be wise. But one of the big rules was you don't let anyone else drive your car. That was the rule. And so I'm 16 years old and I've got this car and I, and I know that rule. I've heard it. it. It makes sense to me. And then there was Melanie Simmons, <laughs> who was a cheerleader who needed a ride to school one day and lived in my neighborhood. And she called because she had missed the bus. I went and picked her up. And, and as we drive to school, we're kind of getting there late. And it's January, February, it's cold outside and it's a Friday. And since it was a Friday, she was wearing her cheerleader outfit, which probably didn't help my decision-making at, at all. And as I pull into the parking lot in the student parking lot, I know she had to go to soccer and soccer was down at the, at the far end of, of our athletic complex. And I'm going to school. And I knew the rule. The rule was no one else drives your car. But as a true gentleman, knowing that it was cold and she was in a short skirt and no sleeves, I said, hey, take my car. You can drive it down and just bring it back. And I remember I went to class, first period English, Miss Northern's class. I remember sitting in there and Somehow or another conversation came up with some friends and, and I had said something about, yeah, Melanie took my car down there. And one of them goes, oh man, you're never getting your car back. And I was like, don't say things like that. Yeah, that's terrible. And before the end of the period, the principal comes over, there's that, you know, that bing in the classroom. Could you please send Brett Levi to the office? And my buddy looks at me and he goes, and this is a true story. He goes, I told you so. And I'm like, no. I've probably won some kind of award or something <laughs> for being an awesome person. So I go down, real, and, and really just out, out, I'm not even thinking. I walk down and here's this girl standing in the principal's office and she's crying. And my first thought is, oh, she's probably got in trouble because she's not allowed to. No, 
she drove it up onto a pole. To this day, the pole was about thigh high. To this day, I still haven't figured out the physics behind getting a 280ZX up onto a pole and the pole was going through the driver's side floorboard. I don't know how that happened. But I know that I dreaded making the phone call to my dad. And I called, told him, and he was remarkably merciful. And, and I remember as we were going through this process, you know, and I, I know that the, the rule is no one drives your car. But it wasn't until, you know, afterwards, kind of learning the hard way, when I remember my dad getting out the phone, he said, well, listen, I don't know what's going to happen because she's not on the insurance. So I don't know if the insurance is going to pay for it. Well, as a 16-year-old, that never crossed my mind before, you know? And, and all of a sudden it was like, oh no. And then when we got the phone and I don't know why this didn't cross, well, I know why it didn't cross my mind. We've already you know, established the fact of why I wasn't thinking well. She doesn't have a driver's license. Stop judging me. I mean, come on. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden the lesson is getting driven home the hard way. Some of us are just wired that way. Some of us along this continuum, we're not, some of us, we love having people to give us advice. We love having mentors. We love having coaches along the way. We, there's some of us that go, you know what? That story makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to learn the hard way. I never have. I, 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 actually, I was the youngest of two brothers. So I really didn't learn the hard way a lot of times. I learned from their mistakes. I'm probably more wired this way most of the time where I, I want coaching. I want people to lean in. But if we were honest, even if you're all the way down on this end of this continuum and you've got multiple coaches and things like this, I, along the way, there will come a time where your coach, your mentor, the person who's leaning into you, the person who's walked the path already that you're following in the footsteps of is going to say something to you, suggest something to you, give you an idea that you don't want, right? And all of a sudden it gets difficult. It's really great when your mentors tell you things that you already believe and already are doing and already want to do. It's just affirmation. But what about when that person who's walked the path before leans in and says, listen, you're doing it wrong. All of a sudden we kind of put a wall up. And we're not as interested in, in the coaching, in the mentoring, in, in walking that path with somebody else as we were before. The Bible talks a lot in a lot of places, not so much explicitly as it does intuitively about mentoring. I mean, you look at, and, and not just mentoring, but, but generations leaning into other generations. I mean, you go to the Old Testament and you find people like Moses, and Moses is a hero of of the Jewish faith of the Old Testament. But we forget oftentimes about Jethro, his father-in-law, who brought Moses under his wing and coached him and leaned into him and taught him. There was this generation of Jethro's generation passing down to Moses. And as Moses got older, and, and Moses was the older generation and he passed down to the younger generation, a guy named Joshua. We see in the gospels early on, we see Elizabeth passing down to advice to Mary. You go into the epistles and we see Paul and we see Timothy. We see these relationships all throughout scripture where the older generation leans in and blazes the trail for the younger generation and says, hey, follow in my footsteps. It's not just stories though. In Titus chapter two, 
as Paul is telling Titus, he, he tells Titus to tell the, the women, and it's pretty explicit. He says, have the older women train the younger women. That, that was a part of the church dynamic was this older generation of women were to invest and push down into the younger generation of women. Peter, in 1 Peter, in his writings, when he's talking to young leaders, one of the things that he says to young leaders, he says, submit yourselves to the elder leaders. You know, most of us are kind of middle-aged and we're, we're moving into that older generation, but, but you're probably like me, you can remember when you were younger and there were these, these guys that were in your business or whatever that had, they were established. And, and I, don't, well, I don't know if it was you, this was me though. I remember thinking there were times where like, I, I knew better than they did. You know, they were old, they were out of date, you know, especially in youth ministry. And, oh, you know, I'm like 22, I'm just, I'm right in that same generation. And sometimes it's easy to think, you know what, I've got it figured out and, and the sun has set on them. But in reality, Paul tells us, you know what, you need to submit to them, you need to learn from them, you need to let their authority rest over you because it's easier to walk the path than to make the path, and they've already done it. One of my favorite relationships in the Bible is Elijah and Elisha. And this morning, we're gonna look at a, passage, a couple of passages of scripture that kind of uh, talk about the front end of their relationship and the back end of their relationship. And we see this older generation passing down to the newer generation. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, to Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So he has him anoint these two kings. And then this is interesting. He says, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebel Melola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Skip down to verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. As far as we know, Elijah and Elisha have, don't have this relationship. But I find it interesting that God looks at the prophet. God looks at, at, at the guy who, I mean, Elijah this time, let's just say, Elijah's like the LeBron of James of prophets. I mean, right prior to this, Elijah in chapter 18, <coughs> he's had this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. If you haven't read that passage, go back this week and read it. It's incredible. In a nutshell, all of these pagan worshipers challenge Elijah over whose God is real. And so they, they have a contest, basically. And, and the prophets of Baal sacrifice a bull and they, and they, they uh, call down fire. They, they wanna call down fire upon it that, that Baal is going to take the sacrifice. And Elijah stays there and they, they chant and they pray and they cut themselves and nothing happens because there's no such thing as Baal. And then comes Elijah's turn. And Elijah puts the bull on the, on the altar. He digs a ditch around the altar and he, he has him bring so much water and just to saturate this, this sacrifice with water so that it won't burn. 
so much, that, so much water that it fills the trench around. And then Elijah prays and fire from heaven comes and eliminates everything. And Elijah walks off the hero. I mean, Elijah's done this incredible miracle. That's chapter 18. Elijah's at the peak of his game. He is, he is the hero. And this is what God tells him. In the height of your power, in the height of your fame, in the height of your ministry, go and anoint Elisha who's going to take your place. Isn't it interesting? God didn't say, listen, Elijah, you got, you got 15 more good years. So let's start thinking about what's gonna happen next. He says, at the peak of your business, at the peak of your ministry, find the next person and start pouring into them. And he goes and he takes his cloak and he lays it on Elisha, which is the sign of, hey, you can come follow me, which would have been a big deal because of who Elijah was. And Elisha's just, he's out farming. And Elisha goes after him and says, you know, let me take care of some business real quick and I'll come follow you. And then here's the interesting thing. And I just got done reading the book Greater by Stephen Furtick and he talks about this and he made a great insight that you can read over. Elisha's got these 12 yoke of oxen. You, you know how valuable that would have been in those days to have that type of animal and, and the yoke and the farm equipment. And when Elisha goes to follow Elijah to start walking in the path that Elijah walks, he doesn't sell the oxen. He doesn't take the farm equipment and put it in his parents' shed. He takes the farm equipment and he turns it into kindling, lights a fire with the yoke and the tractor, slaughters the oxen, cooks them, feeds the people and walks away having burned the ships. You see, Elisha had nothing to go back to when the mentor called and said, hey, come walk in my path. Elisha was all in. And I think that's an interesting thing for us to consider as, as we are letting this older generation invest in us. Are we really trusting the people that God has placed in front of us, these older generations to help lead us? Are they always going to be right? No, surely not. And you won't be always right when you're the older generation. But Elisha was all in in this relationship with this older uh, mentor to help lead him and teach him the ropes. And at this point, if Elijah says, listen, Elisha, here's what we're going to do because it's what's best. It's what I've learned. And here's how we're, Elisha doesn't have the option any longer to go, eh, no, I changed my mind. I'm going back to where I was. And he was all in. Incredible stuff. Look at 2 Kings chapter two. Pick up the very end of their time together. 2 Kings chapter two, verse six. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you, live, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, his, the mentee to the mentor, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. 
And as they still went on and talked, behold, and this is where it gets really cool, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. One of the two people that we know of that went straight into heaven without dying. And Elijah saw it and cried, my father, my father. It tells you something about the mentee-mentor relationship. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And look what happens. He took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Love this relationship between these two guys. <coughs> the older prophet and the younger prophet. The guy who's in the upper generation that says, hey, come follow me. And the younger guy says, I'm all in. Teach me what you know. I want to learn from you. I'm not, even if you tell me something that's uncomfortable, if you, if you lead me to something that's difficult, I'm not going back. I'm trusting you because it's easier for me to walk in the path than to make the path. And at the end of the time, Elijah's about to go to heaven in this miraculous chariots of fire and horses of fire event. And Elisha's, Elisha's final request to the mentor is, I, I, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want to be able to do not just the things you've done for God. I want to be able to do twice as much. And Elijah basically says, well, I, I, that's really not for me to grant. But if you see me, if you see me taken up, then you can count on it. And he does. And Elisha calls out to him, my father, my father, in this, this relationship that, that said, I've sold everything. I'm walking with you. I'm trusting. I'm walking in your path. And then I love what happens. Elisha takes the cloak. And as he's headed back, he does the same thing Elijah does, strikes the water and the water parts. And he's still walking in the same path that Elijah did. There is no place better than the local church to find people of another generation who've been there and done that to coach us along the way. And it, may be, it may be business coaching. It may be parenting questions. It may be something spiritual, but we have this, we have this privilege of sitting in, in a facility that was built by the people primarily that went before us. And they're here with us every Sunday morning. Where else do you find that? Especially from a spiritual standpoint, where else do you find somebody? How about, where else are you going to find somebody that has been through tragedy? They're here. And they've walked with God through the tragedy. And some of them are saying, you know what? I would love, I would love before I go to be with Jesus, I would love to pass on some leadership. I would love to pass on some thoughts. I would love to pass on some encouragement. I would love to pass on some advice. It's a powerful thing that we have, and it's a value that we hold. It's a value as a church, but it's a value that you and I should hold. So two things for you to wrestle with this week and to talk with the kids about. And here's the first one. Can you find somebody from an older generation to mentor you? Would you consider, even if it's just, maybe it's not business, maybe it's not parent, maybe it's just spiritual, <coughs> somebody who's walked with God for a decade or two longer than you have to come along and say, hey, here's what I've learned along the way. Here's what God showed me. 
to have somebody that, that when you have spiritual questions or your faith is tested, that you can go to and they might just, <coughs> excuse me, lean in and say, Here, here's how God tested my faith. And all of a sudden you're walking in the path that they've walked in. I've, I would love, I, I, I hear stories about this all the time. I didn't have, I would have loved to have like that grandfatherly relationship. None of my grandfather, I didn't have like a grandfather relationship where I have like, you know, words of wisdom that my grandfather passed down to me. I mean, the only thing that my grandfather told me was stay out of the kitchen when your grandmother's cooking because she gets mad. You know, I mean, that's, I mean there's probably, probably wisdom in that, but and I'll probably pass that down to my kids one day. I don't know, but I didn't have those stories. But I've had some men that I've had to be intentional with to go and say, would you meet with me? Would you mentor me? And so I have two men that I meet with once a month. Um, and, and I actually go, I buy them lunch once a month and sit down with them. And sometimes I have questions Sometimes I'm reading a book. Sometimes we might just talk football or something like that. But I have these two older men who have been there, done that, that are leaning into my life and who are giving me wisdom when it's necessary. One of the things that has transformed my life and is transforming my life is, is a statement that came from a book and it was about parenting. And it's this, be unto your kids as God is unto you. It's a great quote. Be into your kids. Be a dad to Rayleigh and Emerson like God is to me. I'll never forget that. That was given to me sitting around a table at Chewy's with one of my mentors. And he didn't make it up. I'm sure he read it in a book, but just I'll take that with me forever because there was an older guy loving me, teaching me, leaning into me. One of the things that I felt God's called me to and Amanda agrees, is to be at one place from a ministry for an extended period of time. And so Amanda and I have been here in Georgetown for 12 years. And we, I think we both would agree this, I know I do, that we feel called really not even to youth ministry as much anymore as we feel called to Georgetown, that this is where God has planted us to be a minister to the people of this community. And so I had this this desire to be in a place a long time. But, but if you know anything about being someplace a long time, especially in the church world, there's ups and downs. You know, it's not green pastures all the time. I mean, there's difficult times. And I have a guy, his name's Randy. Randy was at First Baptist Richardson for 26 years, I believe, 23 or 26 years as a youth minister, retired in his 60s. And I remember multiple, I remember sitting in Underwoods and Brownwood talking about with him just some struggles of, of being someplace in, in one of those times where it was, it was low times. And I remember him looking me across the table and saying, if God has called you to the long run, then you just need to be prepared that it's not always gonna be rainbows. The long run has valleys, but you stick it through. That's what God's called you to do. And you'll see you on the other side. And he's absolutely right. It's these older guys that have been there then the moment where I'm like, golly, I don't know if I can go any further. They go, listen, I was in one place for 26 years and there were a lot of years that were bad, but there were a lot of years that were great. And God's called you to the great and to the bad. That, that I will never forget because somebody older than me, this other generation has begun to lean down into me. And, and, and because of that, I mean, it's changed who I am um, in, in a lot of ways. I spent this last semester on Tuesdays driving to Brownwood to teach at Howard Payne University, to teach youth ministers. And it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, every Tuesday night driving two hours, teaching for three hours, and then driving back two hours is difficult. And they don't pay you a whole lot. The reason why I did it and did it for a couple semesters 
is because I had people that were older generation of youth ministers that leaned into me and helped me along the way. They, they blazed the path that I walked in and I'm trying to do the same thing for some guys that are coming behind me because they're the next generation of youth ministers. They're the ones that are gonna take my place one day. And I want them to have that because I had that. So who is it that's in a generation above you that you can go to? Now, let me say this, just from a practicality standpoint. You have to be intentional, which means you're going to have to place yourself around people of an older generation. You're gonna to have to, to, to be walking in their circles and getting to know them. It usually doesn't work. Sometimes it does, but it usually doesn't work to put an ad like you know, in the paper on Craigslist, looking for a mentor. 60 to 80, you know, I mean, it, that, it's weird. But you know where you can find one? In a worship service, on a mission trip. And all of a sudden you're doing some things through the local church, interacting with some people. You're doing Merry Christmas with love as a family. And while you're doing that, you end up talking to somebody and, and you realize, man, this guy, this guy's got a lot of wisdom and you can just kind of connect. And all of a sudden you've got this relationship that's very easy to go, hey, could we go to lunch sometime? And it, but that's intentional. It's putting yourself in places where the older generation is. Now on the flip side, here's number two. Number one is find somebody in the older generation. But number two is find the person in the younger generation. Who is it that you're leaning into? Who is it that you're pouring out your life to? What young parent who isn't in this, this class because they're not in parenting teens because they've got you know, two-year-olds, that's their old, and they're trying to figure out parenting. And, and I understand you're trying to figure out parenting teenagers, but but you have teenagers, which means you made it through the two-year-old time, right? So are you able to coach them, lean into them, say, hey, listen, I know there's times where, you know, you have a three-year-old and, and you wish that you'd never had kids. I was there. I remember, you know, those days, but it gets better. To lean in, to coach them, to, to be the mentor to them. But just like that older generation, it's gotta be intentional. You've gotta find yourself around other people that are younger than you so that those relationships naturally connect. So there's the practicality of it. You've got to start looking and go, if I just hang out with people my age all the time, you're never going to find people above you and below you to share in the generational exchange. I read a story about a guy named Paul Coleman. He's from England and, and uh, loves doing treasure hunting stuff. And I've always been enamored by that. Uh, we were at the beach uh, last year or so ago, and there was a guy, and he was walking out on the beach with a metal detector. And, and I, was, I mean, I was just enamored by, you know, I was waiting for that thing to go off, and I was going to run and start dig, you know, wherever he was. You know, I'm watching it. And so I went and I talked to him for a little bit, uh, just because I thought, man, that's just kind of interesting. I said, have, have you ever found anything? And he said, he said, yeah, you find, especially out here on the beach, you find rings and you find necklaces and things like that have fallen off and the sand covers them up. Um, <coughs> And so he said, I've never you know, found anything huge, but I've always been drawn to stories like that where somebody's uncovered like great treasure. It'd be such an adventure. Earlier this year, in January, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a guy named Paul Coleman went out on a dig in England, uh, got his son and said, hey, do you want to go? And the crazy thing is he almost didn't go because he, his son wasn't sure if he was going to go and he wasn't going to go unless his son split the gas with him. They end up going out on this dig and he's metal detector and looking stuff and he comes across what they believe is going to be the largest cache of Saxon coins. It's over a million dollars worth of silver coins. And he said, as he was digging, 
he got to the point where he's like, ah, there's gonna be nothing today. It's gonna be a wasted day. And then he hit lead, a lead box. And he started to, to dig through and open it up. And they said, these coins are in pristine condition that some of them, if they clean them, look like mirrors. They're so new. They think they might've come from a mint at some time that was right in that area and just buried, never been circulated or used before. I'm just, that just blows me. I, I wanna go into my backyard one day and find a million dollars worth of coins. I mean, that's a story to tell, right? I mean, if that happens, I'm just giving you fair warning. It's gonna be a sermon illustration at least seven or eight times over. I mean, it's gonna work into all kinds of different things. That would just be this amazing thing, the story, and then all of a sudden, I'm drawn to those things. I think a lot of people are. But here's the crazy thing. We've got a treasure trove of wealth, of wisdom, that we don't have to go digging for. And they're meeting in a room right down the hallway from us. They're some of our senior adults. And they've been there, they've done that, they've been where you are, they've blazed the trail spiritually, parenting, business. That's a value. Let's start leaning into that and start walking in the path. Doesn't mean you're not gonna be first, it doesn't mean you're not gonna be trailblazers, but learn along the way from some people who've been there. And like Elijah and Elisha, build some relationships that connect you closer to God because of the people who have been there in front of you. And while you're doing that, you're preparing the way for the ones behind you. This value of generations of being a multi-generational church has such power. I'd love for us to tap into it. Let's pray and then uh, we'll talk in our small groups.